0: Well, hello, and welcome to From the Center, the podcast of the Center for Western Studies. I'm John Hodges. I'm the director of the center here, and we're very glad you're here. Uh, I'm sitting here with my good friend, Cal Beisner, and Cal and I are going to chat a little bit about freedom and liberty and rights in just a minute. I thought first maybe we could talk a little bit about how we met, because many people won't know how that would be. We've known each other now for what, five, six years? Something like that. And yeah. and we
1: met when you drove me to tears. <laughs> drove you to tears? Yeah. Oh,
0: you mean in the lecture?
1: You, you did, yeah. I mean, gotcha. yeah, we went, uh, we, uh, we were both speaking for the uh, Biblical Worldview student conference that's in right. Northeast Tennessee. That's right, that's and right. And you came in to do your first lecture and you started lecturing on the second movement of brahms's requiem yes which yeah. happens to be my favorite movement of all choral music oh my goodness I've i just hit the it, right one huh? i've sung it so many times in uh, yeah. in uh, concert and uh in german as it ought always to be done mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh you actually um, did you, did you play a few bars of it on the piano or what? How did,
0: how I, I think, think how I, I probably, well, I know I walked through the whole movement with them in yeah. a recording, but maybe I played a okay, few bars so to start maybe, with.
1: Uh, I, I think that's what you did. Yeah, you played it and just simply to hear those first few bars oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, gripped me. And then you start telling all about it. It wasn't more than about three or four minutes in to your lecture before my eyes were welling oh, up oh, oh. and it's such a powerful by piece. about six or seven minutes the tears were just streaming down my cheeks <laughs> gosh and that just continued all the way through the entire <laughs> stinking lecture man i mean <laughs> uh, wow <laughs> and it wasn't tears of sorrow or anything it was tears of joy oh. because that is such a magnificent movement isn't that an amazing
0: piece of music
1: it, it really is yes. the whole requiem is but that. Movement, especially. Yes, yes, Uh, yes. And it just said to me, here's a
0: kindred spirit. (laughs) I I, I knew that immediately. Well, I remember wanting to meet you at that conference because uh, I had read your book. You've written many books, but I had read your book with um, uh, the Turning Point series on economics. Uh It was called Prosperity and Poverty. And it had a subtitle. The Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity. Ah, The Compassionate yeah. Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity. Well, anyway, it impressed me greatly, in particular, this, this chapter you had uh, or section that you had on uh, the Jubilee year. Mm-hmm. The Jubilee year, where you, you talked about how it is that that was understood. Because so many people have been arguing that from the left that that's a good example of, of uh, sort of social redistribution and so on, that right. every so often we have to redistribute all the property, you know.
1: Yeah, which completely misreads yeah. the text itself. Yeah. I mean, the, the text is very, very explicit. Um, it's from Levit- Leviticus 25. Mm. And what we're told is that every 50th year, the year after the seventh sabbatical year, right. uh, whatever land your neighbor has sold to you has to be returned to your neighbor. Um, but the text itself explicitly says, at one point, it's, it's not the land he's selling you, it's the crops, yes. it's the harvests,
2: yes. 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 and
1: the price of this sale I think we should put scare quotes around the world word sale. Mm -hmm. Uh, The price of this is the anticipated value of the harvests from the year you do it to the next jubilee. Jubilee year, sure. And the uh, the quote unquote buyer of the land uh, now has control of it over those years, right. and he cultivates that land, and he, he the gets proceeds. the harvards, right. keep, uh, harvests, keeps the proceeds, and those proceeds pay him back right. for that okay. price. Right. So, in essence, the land is functioning as collateral for a loan.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we know that because the text also tells us explicitly that when the borrower is able to repay the balance do mm-hmm. at any time, the buyer has no option but to accept that back, and then the land goes back to and, the borrower yeah, in the first the place. Land. So it's back to the just borrower, exactly like collateral for a loan. Well, what do you do when, when, uh, what, what does the bank do when you make your final payment on your mortgage? Yeah, it has to give you the deed. It That's has right. to, uh, you know, end the mortgage. That's right. There's no redistribution of
0: wealth going on there at all. Yeah. Uh, well, that was such an impressive read of that and an explanation of that, that I, uh, I thought, man, if I ever get a chance to meet this guy, I would really like to meet him. <laughs> so That's how I thought. It was a great book. I would still recommend it. Uh, then, then uh, some year or two, three later, I, I got a call from the folks that were putting that conference together. And and they said uh, that you were going to be speaking there. And I said, well, then sign me up because I wanted to meet you. (laughs) So I I was very glad to get to meet you. And we hit it off right off. In fact, I think we went out to get pancakes one morning or something and chatted then. And uh, and uh, that may may have been. That may have even been before I did any lectures. I, I don't know whether it was before or after. Think so.
1: I think exactly. when you walked on the stage was actually the, the first, first time, time I saw you. Yeah. Okay. My daughter was with me at the time. And of yeah, course, sure. she loves the Brahms Requiem, too. Oh, and yeah. she was deeply moved by that. And, and by the end of that lecture, we were both determined we were going to learn a lot more about you. And ultimately, that led to Grace coming to... Uh, be a student at, the, study center study at the Center for Western Studies, right. yeah. That's right, and it was it? a life-changing experience for her. And oh, uh, by the time she was done with it, my wife, who got to do the, the uh, Paris and London trip with you all. <laughs> yes, she came got, with us. That was and, wonderful. And she told Grace, you got more out of your one year here at the Center for Western Studies than I got out of my four years at Hillsdale
0: College. Oh, my, my. What a, what a compliment. I can't imagine that's true, but that's very sweet of her to say. <laughs> and we loved having Grace here. She was a terrific student, just the kind of girl we wanted to have. Um, so thank you for that. I, I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm always looking for new students for the center. Uh, anybody that's listening today uh, would know that uh, we are accepting applications for next fall's gap year program. We offer a gap year for students who want to take a year off between high school and college, usually. And we study uh, two things. We study the history of uh, ideas in the West and we st- through the arts, you know, and we study them through the lens of a Christian yeah. view of the world. Yeah. John, let me just ask you a question. I, I
1: know, you know, I'm kind of the guest here and yeah, the yeah. typical protocol is you ask the guest, right? But I want to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. You just said you study the great ideas of the West. Mm-hmm. Why just the West?
0: Why not also the East Yeah, and the Global South? Sure, sure. Great question. Great question. I usually answer that by saying that that primarily w- the reason is I'm a Westerner. I was born into the West. That's my culture. That's where I came from. And so I should get to know my own family first before I start studying other families. If you know your own uh, heritage, your own uh, 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 cultural inheritance, uh, then you can learn certainly how it is that other people love their cultural inheritances, but you can also have a set of criteria by which you can evaluate and enjoy other people 's cultures too so it 's certainly not exclusive to the West in the sense i mean it 's not a personal exclusion it 's just a an academic exclusion we 're interested in the the uh, the accomplishments of Uh, The Western world since the pre-Socratics, basically. Um, But there's a second reason, too. And I argue, I really think that Western civilization is, uh, in many ways, the pinnacle of human accomplishment. I think most musicians would argue that Bach is the greatest composer. Um, Shakespeare is the, certainly the greatest uh, uh, writer in the English language, you know, uh, and maybe in literature, in human, human experience. Uh, you know, uh, Alan Bloom, or uh, Harold Bloom, rather, uh, wrote uh, 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 Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human. Yeah. He, he did an evaluation of Shakespeare's works, you know, and he says this is this is a, a compilation of every possible combination of motives, human motives and experiences, you know, in one set of plays. There's a reason to study the West because it has offered the world uh, the, the the ultimately the, uh, the, the synthesis between the wisdom of the Greeks and the revelation of the Jews founded in. Uh, Christianity and through yeah. Rome, and I I argue that uh, that that Athens and Jerusalem combination is a combination that's actually synthesized in one person, and that's Saint Paul. That's Paul, because he he was not only a a, a, a Jew of Jews, you know, he was a Pharisee, right, also and knew it well. One of the Romans, but he was also a Roman citizen, and he spoke Greek and knew Greek rhetoric, yeah. and so he was the perfect tool formed by God before he even became a believer, you know, to be able to take the gospel west to the Gentiles. And it's the west that received it and ran with it, and then it's continued to spread throughout the world. Okay. So that's a way to uh, approach it anyway. I've had lots of people, even Christians, argue that that to, to study only the West seems a little, um, I don't know, xenophobic or something, uh, uh, myopic, uh, blinders, you know. Well, I, I really like the way you,
1: you said that what you do is you, you figure, I have to know my own family well first before I go out and start trying to know other families. That's uh, right you know we are limited people <laughs> you know we we're not infinite god can know all the cultures of the world and every individual in every culture right from the start i can't do that right and i really if i want to understand any culture i need to start off by understanding my own culture and then i can learn about other cultures by comparison and contrast. I can see right. the things that are similar. I can see the things that differ. I can then begin to do that absolutely inescapable task, responsibility, of evaluating. Yes. You know, I, I cannot step back and pretend that everything is equal.
0: Right, It isn't. That's right,
1: that's right. Um, uh, and, and, but I, I can't do that
0: if I don't first know my own culture. And there's, a, there's an element, too, of our own culture, this Western culture, that is under... How would I put this? Um, with, without Western culture, we wouldn't even ask the question, why do you only study Western culture? Because it's the study of a culture, of any culture, that is the Western mind. It is. You see? I, I remember talking to a fellow who was a... Uh, Catholic priest in India. He grew up an in Indian in uh-huh. you know, India, uh, and and uh, he converted to Catholicism from Hinduism. Uh-huh. And I asked him if there were universities in India, and he said, oh, sure, there are lots of them, yeah. I said, well, how old are they? And he said, well, I don't know, you know, 150 years, 200 maybe years old. And I said, that's interesting. Why so young, do you think? Because, you know, Cambridge, 10 years ago or so, uh, celebrated its 800th anniversary. (laughs) So why is that? And he had an answer immediately. He said, oh, I can tell you that. It's easy. He says, the the only reason there are universities in India is because people from the West came and built them. Or people from... William Carey, exactly. And uh, and others, too. Uh, and uh, Or people from India went to the West to study, and then came back and built something, you see. And he said, Hinduism never would have built a university. Yeah. And it's true, if you think about it. Yeah. Now, because of the influence of the university, which is, by the way, as we're saying, is a Western invention, now India is full of some of the best minds there are, you know, sharp sharp scientists, sharp not engineers, all sharp. Either. No, 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 they haven't left their Hinduism, but they've they've learned these things in a sense in spite of their Hinduism, yeah. you know, because they've they've adopted a, a, an approach to knowledge that is uniquely western. Yeah. So the idea of comparing uh, cultures and evaluating cultures is itself a western idea, I think. Yeah your sense that we need to start with knowing our own family,
1: mm-hmm. knowing our own culture, um, reminds me, actually, of the work of, uh, I believe you know uh, Vishal Mangalwadi. Oh, yes, well, good friend uh, of mine. Well, right, yeah, mutual sure. friend to yeah. us. Uh, you know, and he's this Indian Christian philosopher right. who then came into the West and saw the various things that we in the West take for granted and realized their roots in the Judeo-Christian moral uh, consciousness, Mm -hmm. uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, theology, ethics, and wrote extensively, especially in his, uh, I I think it's his, his finest book in this field anyway, Uh, the book that made your world. Yes. uh, All about how these are the things that you folks in the West take for granted as a fish takes water for granted. Oh, yes. And you aren't aware that, that you are losing the foundations of these these mutually assumed values such as even simple honesty Mm -hmm. uh, that when you walk past the uh, the rack of of sidewalk sale clothing outside a shop and there's nobody out there tending it Mm -hmm. you don't just pick one up and walk away and not pay for it right Uh, this is something that absolutely shocked Vishal and frankly many other people who would come from uh, from uh, non-Christian cultures, mm. they'd see this and they'd say, "How can this happen?" Right. You know, in India, we'd have to have somebody watching the rack, and somebody watching the person watching the rack, and somebody watching <laughs> exactly. that person, uh, because basic yes, right. honesty was not uh, was not a part of the underlying values yeah. of Hinduism yeah. or even Buddhism. Yeah. Uh, It's a part of the underlying values of Christianity. And we are so very much in danger of losing all of that. And that's why I think it's so important what you are doing with young people is helping them to see the risk that we are of losing those Mm -hmm. and why they're so important and how we can preserve them. Mm. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Yeah, uh, Vishal, uh, in fact, I'm hoping to have Vishal on one of these podcasts here soon. Uh, He's uh, going to be in Nashville, I think, next week. Really? I think that's what he said. Wow. Um, I'd love to go over there and see him, but I don't think I can. Uh, but yeah, I remember a story that he told about uh, uh, his he, bringing his dear wife, Ruth, you know, Ruth. Yes. Beautiful lady. Yep. Uh, over uh, to, for the first time into the to the States. And he was driving along and an ambulance. Uh, came up along you know on the highway and everyone pulled off to the side you know right. and let the ambulance go by yeah. and he just dutifully did that you know he knew to do that he'd been here many times and uh, uh, as he was pulling back onto the highway he looked over and Ruth was weeping huh. and he said what's the matter what's the matter and she she said in so many words it never occurred to me that there would be a place where everybody who is well would get out of the way for the one person who was sick to get yeah. the help that he needed, yeah. you know. She had, in you know, in India, you can find people stepping over people dying in the streets uh, right. and paying no attention at all. Yeah. So, she, th- th- your point about taking these things for granted, you know, is it's it's moral as well as epistemological, isn't it? I mean, it's not just yeah. no, how we look at facts, it's how we look at what's ethical, too.
1: Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I, I see that as, as a contribution of... Biblical revelation, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, in essence, I mean, we can go back to Mount Sinai mm. and you have God uh, revealing to Moses the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, later in Paul, of course, we read in Romans chapter two that this, is, this law is written in the heart of every man and every woman uh, from the very beginning uh, of our lives and from the beginning of human uh, humanity. Uh, this was not something new. But this was an outward, objective way. I mean, God wrote with the finger of God on rock mm-hmm. and put it uh, you know, permanently there. And if we take those 10 Commandments uh, and we work through them, uh, as, as I've done in a, in a series of lectures that you, I, I think you know mm-hmm. yes, of my I, series on the 10 Commandments. They're very good indeed. You, know, you, can, you can derive as logical implications of those, all of the, the most fundamental notions of human rights
2: mm-hmm.
1: that prevail in Western civilization today mm-hmm. and that are being undermined by the proliferation of new claims to, to rights that turn out to be very inconsistent with those.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, so true. So true well it's a, it's a tremendous um, uh, culture that has built up around uh, around this combination of Greek and Rome, uh, Greek and, and Jewish thought in, in Christ and then passed on uh, to the world. Um, I often talk about the you know the Acts sixteen passage where Paul. On his second missionary journey wants to go east, and God stops him and turns him west, yeah, yeah. and uh, so I'm convinced that that the gospel was taken to the west by the hand of God, you know, yeah. and that that's where it
1: it's a took. wonderful vision of the the man in Macedon waving yes. to paul
0: come yes, yes, and then it says, and immediately he, they got in the boat and went, you know yeah. they, they weren't hesitating at all the next morning, they got up and went yeah and uh, and that, of course, was west. Yep. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, when he, he gets to Macedon and meets Lydia and he goes down to Athens, then in chapter 17, and uh, speaks there, the famous uh, Mars Hill uh, talk there. And then after that to uh, Corinth yeah. and then back home again, back to uh, Jerusalem. Well, on this third missionary journey, he doesn't talk about going east at all. He goes the same path, basically, right through Asia Minor, across to Macedonia West, down to Athens, down to uh, Corinth. And on that third journey in Corinth, that's when he writes the book of Romans. Mm-hmm. And so he's thinking about further west, you know, he even
1: wants to get all the way to Spain.
0: And then at the end of it, he speaks of wanting to go to Spain. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I hope to stop in Rome and see you all on my way to Spain. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so from the point of that Macedonian dream, it seems there wasn't a term east again. In right. his mind, he was always focused west, and he was the one that was chosen back in Acts 9, yeah. uh, you know, at his conversion, Go chosen to, the- to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's where we, that's the real source of Western civilization, seems to me. Yeah. And so to, as, as in the modern world, to surgically remove Christianity or Judeo-Christianity or the Bible and revelation as a, not a concept even, from our understanding of what the truth is, is devastating. It, it used to be standard
1: for academic historians to use interchangeably the terms Western civilization and Christendom, Christendom, yes, yeah. right. The the place where Christ rules, yes, where Christian thought rules, which is not a you know a domineering, uh, totalitarian sort of rule, right. It was rather a a, a rule, a, a peaceable rule, through people having embraced the truths of Christianity, right. And uh, of course now uh, we're in significant danger of seeing a lot of that eroded in the West, and yet at the very same time, there's this incredible growth of the church mm. happening in what we sometimes refer to as the two-thirds world or oh, yes. the global south and so on. Sure. The church is growing so rapidly in Africa and Asia yeah. uh, and and uh, you know, very much Latin America as well uh, that the the losses that we're seeing in North America and Europe yeah. are far more than offset mm. by the gains in those parts of the world Interesting, isn't it? Uh, as the gospel continues to spread and to grow. And this is, you know, Jesus said, the very gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And, and I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah. But we are experiencing some significant decline in our own homes. And if we mm. care about our own family, uh, our own culture, we'd better... We'd better grasp what's going on and and have some ways to answer and and to show the value of this
0: faith that's so structured mm-hmm. our civilization. Mm-hmm. So true. You know, it's uh, I've been reading Tom Holland. Maybe you know Tom Holland, uh, the historian Tom Holland, and uh, he doesn't claim to be a Christian. Well, I'm reading Dominion right now, and and uh, the the thesis of his this massive book is that. Uh, uh, the 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 even the even the most ardent atheists today who are anti-Christian, anti-Church, uh, fighting against the the dictates of the scriptures and so on, themselves are so steeped in Christian thinking that their values are Christian, even though they don't know it. You know, so th- he said the uh, the uh, the idea that we ought to be fighting for the least of these. You know the idea that we should be looking after the poor, you know, or the hungry, or the where did that come from? Where did that come from? It turns out the Greeks didn't think that way at all. The Romans didn't think that way at all. At all. The Chinese? That's right. That way at all. Yeah. Still don't in many yeah. ways. That's yeah. right. But where do we get this idea that we ought to be looking? We get it from the cross. Yeah. We get it from from Christianity. From yeah, yeah, from Jesus Himself. Yeah. Here's the here's the least being executed by the most powerful, and we should be siding with Him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Yeah,
1: it's an amazing book. I, I have only yes.
0: begun reading yes. it on yes. your recommendation. Oh, it's, really? Is that right? It's a great. Yeah, book. it's a worthy worthy yeah. read. Yeah. But you know, it, we, in a couple of the past uh, recent uh, podcasts, we've been re- raising this point because it seems like you can find more and more. Um, what you might call classical liberals, you know, yeah. siding yeah. with us as Christians uh, in favor of a Christian foundation for our civilization, recognizing that without that, we really are going to be cast adrift. People like Jordan Peterson, yeah. like, uh, I think, Roger Scruton, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, I don't think he claimed to be a Christian, did he? Uh,
1: I don't know. He was uh, certainly uh, sympathetic.
0: He was certainly sympathetic, Absolutely. But Jordan Peterson, uh, uh, I think Tom Holland is another example. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that uh, we're beginning to see people. There's a, there's a, I, I recommended a website, uh, a, an episode or two back called um, New... Oh, dear. Now I'm going to get this wrong. Is it New Perspectives? Anyway, it's a set of atheists <clears throat> who are classical liberals and saying mm-hmm. we're losing the ability to reason. Yeah, you know, you know, on the campuses, they're they're college professors, uh, they're fighting against it. So uh, it's interesting. The bedfellows we're going to have, <laughs> but yeah. people are turning around a little bit. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, if I can just mention another another really outstanding uh, book, and I've just just almost finished this book now, <laughs> um, but uh, is Charles Norris Cochran's. Christianity and Classical Culture, ah. uh, a study of thought and action from uh, Augustus to Augustine. And, really? you know, this is uh, this is a fascinating study. And uh, actually, a- earlier on, when you were talking about, uh, I-, I think, the meeting of Athens and Jerusalem mm-hmm. in the Apostle Paul, bringing the classical culture of Greece and Rome together with the the biblical culture of, of really Sinai and Zion, right. Sinai and Jerusalem, uh, in Paul, I was thinking to myself, yes, and then you see, I think, you know, I, I don't want to put Augustine above Paul, sure, but sure. there is this flowering, mm-hmm. this amazing uh, synthesis of, of these different ideas in Augustine. Absolutely. And uh, there was, there was this, this very noble notion of Romanitas uh, in Roman civilization that combined piety and justice and uh, uh, service uh, and the, the fear of, for the Romans, the gods, right? Mm-hmm but that collapsed in Roman culture in the hmm. third, fourth, into the early fifth centuries, mm-hmm. but that was, was sort of a, almost a precursor to the idea of the Christian man, the Christian woman mm-hmm. that, that flowered and took its place
2: mm-hmm.
1: and revived what had been the the best things mm. of Greece and Rome, right? While it set aside the the rotten things mm. that that threatened to to under and and ultimately did uh, bring about the
0: collapse of those two civilizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think you're exactly right about Augustine too. I uh, we read uh, uh, Confessions here. But I wish we could read City of God. Oh, my. I have time to read City of God. I give them a kind of an overview of it, but I don't, we don't really make them read it because it's so long, but and and so much we can do. The fun thing
1: about confessions is that there's so much of it that's funny,
0: too. Yes, yes, it's delightful. (laughs) It's delightful. Yeah, I know what you mean. And really, he kind of kicks off the Middle Ages, doesn't he? He 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 starts us into the Christian Middle Ages. Yeah. Uh, it takes a long time, doesn't it, for the for the thing to happen, for the roots to be sunk into the Roman world, and eventually break up all that that pagan soil and yeah. and uh, bring about uh, bring about a, a new view of of the city of God uh, if, as a vision for the Mid- Middle Ages. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm very concerned that we have lost sight of a, a very Christian understanding of the of the concept of freedom. Uh huh. That we, liberty, freedom, kind of the same thing, that we have come to, in our post-enlightenment kind of mind, we've come to the position where we think freedom means autonomy. Yeah. You know, being able to do anything you want to do, right? And so you can understand if that's your goal, then if someone comes along and says, you know, you can't be a woman, you're a man, well, that's a limitation of who I am, right? And that's a lack of freedom and it needs to be opposed. Yeah. Any, any kind of limitation needs to be opposed because the goal is is autonomy. And if, I, if I can just yeah. pick up on
1: that word because I think it's really crucial that we understand what this is. Autonomy is not simply freedom in, I think, the classical sense that all of us have understood or that so much of Western culture has understood for so long. Mm-hmm. Autonomy is I mean, take it apart etymologically, Yes. autos, self, and nomos, law, right. self-law. I am a law to myself. That's the idea of autonomy. Now, that's right. you know, we, we hear of autonomy, and people will talk of autonomy in a, in a fairly positive, positive sense. Right. But how many of them are ready to say, yeah, so-and-so is a law to himself, and that's a great thing.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Uh, I am a law to myself that's not exactly what we think. We don't feel that way. Right. If I'm driving down the highway and I decide that I'm a law to myself, so I'm going to drive on the left side in the United States instead of on the right, uh, and I'm I'm going to make left turns out of the right-hand lane and things like that. We all know that every person being a law to himself is insanity. Yes. You cannot have a a living civilization that way. You can't have a living family that way.
0: Right. At uh, right. any level. Nobody really wants to live that way if they think about it. Yeah. It just seems utopian, kind of like, oh, everybody can just do whatever he likes. Maybe I'd like to be a law to myself, but only <laughs> on
1: condition that nobody else gets to be a law to herself. Right.
0: <laughs> All right. Right. Exactly. I'd get to do what I want to do, but you better stay within the gu- in the guidelines.
1: And so real freedom, (laughs) Real freedom comes when when you and I both realize that neither one of us is a law to himself, that there are transcendent laws to which I must bow if I am to enjoy the freedom for which God has has created me. And you must bow if you're going to enjoy it and you must bow if I'm going to enjoy it. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah. And uh, so. Otherwise, society is not impossible. Right. It's impossible. Right. And this is implicit at Sinai. Yes. When God introduces the Ten Commandments by saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you out of bondage yes. of the land of slavery yes. in Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment, right? Mm-hmm. So, what is it? The Ten Commandments are not there to imprison, they are there to liberate. Right. To liberate us from what happens when we become enslaved to others or even enslaved. To ourselves
0: yes okay. in fact that enslavement idea is a very good one I've heard you say many times that uh, we're either going to be a slave to God or we're going to be a slave to ourselves but we or can't something else actually we'll never even wind up being slaves to ourselves be something else yeah we were
1: not made to be number one right God made us to be number two we're gonna be number two to him or ultimately we're gonna be number two to Satan Mm-hmm. To the real devil. There's a real devil out there, and, and a lot of people don't
0: like that idea, but yeah. he's there. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe there's a devil, <laughs> and he is he is conspiring. Right. And my
1: freedom, I am going to find as I walk in accord with the laws of God, which is which is why Paul in Romans six. I mean, this classic discussion. Paul says, you know. Uh, we have been delivered from slavery to sin. Yes. Exactly. And then he actually says, so that we are we become slaves, slaves to, to righteousness. righteousness. Yes, you know, that's it. That was made to, and, and Paul, this is no insulting thing. Right. Paul refers to himself over and over again in his epistles as a slave, a doulos of Christ. Right, Bond servant. You know, yeah, bondservant of Christ. Right. It's it's as I am serving God. That I, try, uh, that, that I find true freedom.
0: Yes, yes, yes. But there's not that third option, is there, of just being a slave to myself? Yeah, yeah, like I'm, gonna be, I'm gonna be running my own shop. I'm gonna call my own shots. It's just the temptation in the garden, isn't it? It is. To do it the way it you is. want to instead of following God. So we find it, the, the seeming contradiction is to find our freedom in slavery, but slavery to the right master. Yeah, Yeah right well i think that's the that's the essence of the of a lot of the problems we have in our day now because we have this idea that anything that stands in the way of my being free to do what i like is is uh, is justified in being destroyed, silenced, thrown out, moved away, opposed? Uh, we need to write laws against it. We need to socially uh, shame people who do that. Whatever it is, yeah. but uh, I'm, it's a kind of it's a kind of new virtue mm-hmm. to to get rid of anything that stands in the way of my autonomy, yeah. um, and it and it plays on the on the desires of the of the majority that say, well, you know, I don't have that problem myself, but I, I hate for you to have to feel that way. You know, I don't feel like I'm a woman, but, gee, I guess if you feel like you're a man that feels like he's a woman, well, then uh, maybe we should adjust the world to accommodate, you know, you so that you're just as free as I am, in a way. Yeah. But that's nonsense. Well, you
1: know, it, it runs solidly up against the very, very inconvenient fact that there's something called truth, mm. you know? Mm. And, uh, and truth is what lies at the bottom of, our, of our, our understanding of nature itself, our understanding of law, our understanding of our relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, uh, I've, I've been thinking, John, and maybe somebody's going to hear this and, and take the idea from me and act on it first. I never have been entrepreneurial. <laughs> but I, I want to I design a bumper sticker. Uh-huh. XX is not equal. Use the not equal sign. XX is not equal to XY.
0: Very good. Ooh, very good. This is, this is a basic
1: truth. Right. This is not something that comes from some mystical uh, ideas. Now we we do get from Genesis one that when God created man, notice the generic term there, uh, humanity. But man, when God created man, male and female, He created them. Right. Uh, we get that there. But doggone it! I mean, this is basic genetics. Yeah. yeah. And any biology student who didn't understand that XX is not equal to XY should fail his you
0: know, sixth grade biology exam. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm, you know, as a, a, a bioethics uh, expert, I'm a pretty good musician. <laughs> so what do I know about bioethics, right? But it's, it's always been strange to me to think that by, you know, chemical means or by even uh, uh, genital surgery or something, you could switch. From one gender to the other, when every single cell in your body is either XX or XY, one or the other, yeah, right? Absolutely. And so your, your, your maleness or your femaleness. And by the way, all of your cells in your body. Yes,
1: right. Not, it's not just that every cell individually is XX or XY. Uh huh. Okay. And, you know, maybe this cell here is XX and that cell over here is XY. It's that all the cells in your body. are either XX or XY, you don't have a mix.
0: That's right. That's right. That's what I understand. (coughs) That's what I understand. So I think it would be a lot harder than we think to to accommodate such a thing.
1: Well, and here's where, uh, uh, because we actually started off thinking that we were going to be talking about rights in here. Yeah. Here's where uh, I think a confused notion of rights Uh can lead to really dreadful conflict in our society because then claims of right can, be, can, can actually contradict each other. Uh-huh. And if that's the case, then there's something wrong with the conception of rights. Uh, consider, for example, uh, the, the right of any person, male or female, to the privacy of his or her own naked body Mm -hmm. all right and we we understand that privacy as very much related to the difference between male and female and this is why for you know for uh, generations we've understood well okay in in uh, in the uh, 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 physical education classes in school, Mm -hmm. you have locker rooms and and the girls shower over here and dress over here and the boys shower and dress over there. And we understand that there is something about male and female that you know, praise God, and this is a glorious thing, it makes them very attracted to each other, mm-hmm. uh, and God uses sight uh, and uh, all of our senses mm-hmm. uh, to to bring about this attraction that can have wonderful results, can bear fruit in more ways than one, sure. uh, but we we keep them separate in circumstances of of. of essentially of nakedness, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. Uh, until marriage. Mm -hmm. But if I decide, and I'm an XY, a male, (laughs) I'm an XY biologically, any geneticist would know me to be that right away. Uh, If I decide, well, no, I don't identify that way. I identify as XX, as female. So I have a right to use the locker room Mm -hmm. and the showers Mm -hmm. and to be naked there in the midst of these naked women. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: How many of those naked women are going to be at all comfortable with my being there? Do they not have a right to privacy? Mm -hmm. Do they not have a right for me not to invade that? Mm -hmm. And if I do, uh, I have violated that right yeah. and so the notion that my self-identification as XX when in fact I'm XY uh, leads to a conflict of rights mm-hmm. and that's because I have denied truth. Truth is I'm XY right? right. and truth and rights have to go together.
0: That's right, and the conflict of, of rights often come about don't they, by uh, insisting on what we call positive rights, uh, a right, a right to have something that, um, that I don't have, rather than in fact, let's, let's take a minute and unpack those terms. How about? Yeah. I, I remember thinking about I mean, there's a, there was an essay back in the '50s by. Uh, um, Uh, What's the philosopher's name? Berlin. Isaiah Berlin. Isaiah Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. Isaiah Berlin uh, on the notion of positive and negative liberties. And he spoke about uh, how (laughs) you he told the story. I think it's I think it's Berlin. I think I'm saying this right. He spoke about how, say, you're driving through a town. And you come to an intersection and you have a fork in the road, you can go left or you can go right and nobody's making you do either. And so you turn left and you go a few more blocks and there's an intersection and you can go straight or turn left or turn right and nobody's making you do anything. And you turn to the right and you feel like you are making your decisions. In a sense, you're free. They're talking about freedom. Yes. Your liberty is free. That is, you're free to choose whichever way you like to go. But he then says, but what if you made that left and that right because you're trying to get to the tobacconist's shop in a hurry because you have a nicotine addiction and you are desperate for a cigarette, you know? Uh, And uh, uh, in that case, in a sense, you're not driving the car. You are being driven. Huh. See what I mean? And isn't that interesting? Yeah. And so suddenly, your choice was free to turn left and to turn right, right? Uh, but it was being made by an internal lack of freedom, as it were. And he, he added the little element of, say, uh, by making that those turns and going to the deba- tobacconists, uh, instead of going uh, to the train station, you miss your train. And you know you're going to miss your train if you go to get the tobacco, but you're drive still makes you go, you know, do that. So you have, a, you have a, a, something in a sense that you would rather do. You wish, you wish you could just make the train on time, but you can't because of this nicotine addiction until so you make the turns you make and so on. Yeah. And so he made a distinction between the first kind of freedom where you're free to choose in a sense externally yes. and the second kind of freedom that is only possible by way of kind of self-discipline. Yeah. Or, or ability to control your own appetites or your own uh, uh, lo- uh, loves, maybe, your own uh, desires. Uh, and that was it, what he called uh, a positive uh, right. That is, it, it, uh, not right, sorry, positive freedom. Positive freedom. Positive freedom. Uh, we'll get to rights in a second. Yeah. Um, but that positive freedom is only possible from the inside, you know. And it kind of yeah. corresponds to what we were saying just a minute ago about how if you are in a sense, uh, slave to your own sins and your own appetites, you're not really free. Yeah. Because you're not free to do the the good. You know, freedom isn't the idea of being able to do anything you want, turn wherever you like. Freedom is the ability to turn the way that is right to turn. That it would have been better to go to the train station instead of having to go to the tobacconist. That kind of idea. Well, in the same way, though, there's such a thing as a positive and negative right Mm-hmm. things right yeah. how would you how would you describe those
1: well uh, let's go back to okay. the positive and negative freedom idea for a minute um, you know when you pull up to that intersection and you have the choice you're going to turn right or left or go straight uh, when we say that you're free uh, in one sense what we're saying is there's no external compulsion
0: right nobody no is
1: more. nobody outside yourself is determining which way you're going to go very good I would say that that is a Negative freedom. That is, it is a freedom from compulsion by somebody outside yourself.
0: That's right. And okay. when you say negative, you don't mean negative in a moral sense or anything. Ne- negative. In a philosophical sense, me- negative, right? right. That, it's, that it's not having to do something.
1: Right, exactly. It it is the absence of something. There you go. Okay, that's the negativity of it. It's not, you know, it's not a bad thing or something like that. That's not what you mean. It is the absence of compulsion from outside yourself. That's negative freedom. And it is precisely the compulsion to get to the tobacconist shop to serve your addiction to the nicotine that is the the positive... uh, it's, it's the presence of a compulsion
2: mm-hmm. that
1: you don't want, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So negative freedom is what we do want. That is this absence of external compulsion for us. Right. But that negative freedom will only be used well if we don't have internal compulsion to the wrong things right and i I think this is something that you often talk with your students about in terms of the importance of having well-ordered loves yes right right if my love for nicotine and the the you know euphoria that i feel under it uh, is strong enough to compel me to do something that i know is destructive right of my higher ends right that's a very uh, disordered love right it's a, and and so that that is a presence of an internal compulsion that is bad but if instead i have an internal compulsion for a proper love mm-hmm. a love of god a love of neighbor a love of truth a love of beauty uh, a love of righteousness, right? right. Those compulsions are, are, are very good. So um, when we talk about, a, when I would say uh, a negative freedom, I mean the absence of this external compulsion, mm-hmm. which is not the same thing as to say the absence of external limits on me. When I get to that intersection, mm-hmm. Uh, there, there may be a limit. I may have to be in the left turn lane to make that left turn without getting a ticket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. It's to protect other people in the roadway from my actions, from my doing something that surprises them. Sure. If I'm in the left turn lane, they know I'm going to turn left. And if instead, I'm in the left turn lane and I suddenly turn right, the guy coming up from behind me, as actually happened uh, yesterday as I was driving, and I didn't notice somebody in my blind spot, Yes. yes. I almost caused an accident. Uh, uh, but this enables predictability
0: uh-huh. uh, on that's the road. Right. That's right. So and it might even be a sign there that says, uh, left lane must turn left. Yeah. Left turn only. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Um, and that's
1: a... I wouldn't say that's a compulsion. That's a limit right. on my freedom. Okay? Similarly with rights. Okay? Um, when, I, when I think, for example, uh, uh, that I have a right to property, uh-huh, does that mean I have a right to walk off with the lamp that's on top of your piano over there uh, when we finish this <laughs> this podcast I can take that home with me? Right? right? right. Because I have a right to property. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. that's uh, no, that's, that's that's not quite how it works, is it? Uh, my right to property is not properly speaking, and notice the 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 etymological connection there, proper and property, Mm -hmm. that's not accidental. Mm -hmm. Uh, My right to property is not a right to this, that, or another thing in the abstract. Yes. It is a right against your taking what is already mine. Right. Without my consent. That's it. That's right. And this is why I, I think we properly understand rights to be negative that is rights are against harms not to benefits Uh uh-huh even my right to life i can forfeit my right to life if i murder someone Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. my right to liberty i can forfeit that Mm-hmm. by committing crimes that justify my being incarcerated to protect other people and as a punishment for what I have done. Right. Um, uh, my right to property, I can forfeit that. If I use my property to harm other people, that can and, and perhaps should be taken away from me in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I actually try mostly to avoid the whole language of a right to this or a right to that. Instead, what I think is clarifying for us, is to say, I have a right against this or that harm. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: all of these flow right out of the Ten Commandments, the law written in the heart of every man and every woman. Uh, you shall not murder. Mm-hmm. I have a right not to be murdered. Right. and it This entails a duty on my part not to murder others.
0: Could it be said, is this the same thing to say, it's not so much that I have a right not to be murdered, but that you have no right to murder me? Is that the same thing? Yeah, I think so. I'm just trying to find a good way to a landing point for that word negative. It's a it's a it's the absence of a right in a sense. It's not so much like we say that the government has no right to uh, suspend uh, freedom of speech. Say Uh Um, it's it's actually limiting government. It's saying that you don't have the right to do that. Yeah,
1: Uh, my right against being murdered. Is your lack of a right to murder me?
0: Uh huh. So maybe it's the same. My
1: my right against you know uh, my property being stolen or my name being defended is the lack of your right uh-huh. to steal or to defame. defame. Yeah. Right? But again, just as I mentioned, I can forfeit my right to life or to property. I can also forfeit my right to a good name. Sure if i do in such a way truly wicked things i have no right for uh, you know to have everybody speak only well of me sure sure that's true when people tell the truth about me and it reveals my wickedness
0: <laughs> sure
1: i don't have any claim
0: yeah that's right well that's that's very good well then what then would be a positive right Well, uh, positive rights are precisely when
1: we talk in terms of, uh, I don't just have a right against having my property stolen, but I have a right to certain property without having earned it, without having uh, gained possession of it in a manner that respects everybody else's rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I I think where we most typically see this kind of thinking uh, surfacing is in claims that, well, everyone has a right to basic health care. Right. Everyone has, we we throw the word basic in, and that makes it all much more palatable. Uh, Everyone has a right to basic education. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a right to basic housing and basic food, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Well, you know, take that last one as an example. If that's the case, then the Apostle Paul, writing as Christians think anyway, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was dead wrong when he said, if someone refuses to work, don't let him eat.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's Second Thessalonians 3.10. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a right... To eat the food that I have produced or bought in exchange with someone else. Right. But I don't have a right to be fed just simply because I exist. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: now, I, I think we can, we can actually nuance that a little bit. When parents bring, when a, when a man and a woman bring a child into, into this world by their consensual Uh, sexual union, they have a duty to that child, Mm -hmm. to take care of that child, child. to feed that child. Mm -hmm. But as that child gets older and older and becomes increasingly a responsible person, those parents also have a duty to train that child to the self-discipline and the, the sense of responsibility that entails that the parent's duty to feed that child eventually comes to an end
2: Mm -hmm.
1: because the child becomes an adult. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the parents actually then uh, deprive the child of its right to a proper, uh, uh, it's, its right against See, I just about fell into the, the positive rights language, didn't I? Uh, it's so easy for so us you, in you our did. culture. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the child has a right against being treated as a child when it becomes an adult. Uh-huh. You see? Uh-huh. Uh, that's the negative right involved. Anyway... That's uh, kind of a dignity of being a, a human yeah. being, yeah. maybe. And, and positive rights, that is rights to benefits... Okay. Uh-huh. Can become self-contradictory or, or you know, conflicting. Or conflicting, certainly. Right. Yeah. Because if I have a right to basic food, but I'm not willing to produce it myself or to trade something valuable for it to somebody who's willing to make that trade, but I still have that right, well, who has the duty to provide that to me? Right. And how will it be provided to me? Well, it can only be provided to me by taking it from somebody else to whom it properly belongs. Mm -hmm. So my so-called positive right to this food or to this clothing or to this shelter or whatever, my so-called positive right becomes an encroachment against somebody else's negative right Mm -hmm. against theft. Mm -hmm. Okay? It's so, like, you know, <laughs> the old saying, my right to swing my arm ends at your nose. Yes, right, right. right. We could all, theoretically anyway, we could all uh, refrain from punching each other in the nose. That's respecting negative rights. I have a right not to be punched in the nose. Mm-hmm. Right. We cannot, it is impossible for us to ensure that everybody gets the same basic food clothing shelter medical care education relationships mm. uh, whatever else mm-hmm. that's uh, that's utterly unrealistic uh, right and, and I don't mean just it's a nice ideal that we're never quite going to reach I mean it is the opposite of an ideal
2: mm-hmm.
1: it is the pursuit of the impossible, the truly impossible, and the pursuit of the truly impossible, I think is a is a wicked thing. Mm. it is a
0: failure to recognize our limitations well, the argument that we get sometimes is that uh, that sort of position is uh, lacking in compassion we we are a compassionate people we care about people who are in need and and so on, and why not then turn to the only instrument in a plurality that is Uh, capable of uh, providing uh, large-scale benefit, uh, that is the government. Well, it's at this point that we'll break up this discussion and give you a chance to catch your breath and, I don't know, make a sandwich. Next week we will pick up right here with Cal Beisner and continue our discussion of positive and negative rights and their relation to critical theory and to law and grace and their differences. If you'd like to contact us to ask questions, to make comments, to disagree, please feel free to do so. Write me here at director at and we'll be happy to read your emails and respond to you directly. And we may even pick up those questions and bring them up in future podcasts. We're very much interested in getting to the bottom of these issues. And so we'd like to be able to hear opposing viewpoints, especially if we're missing something important. So please feel free to get in contact with us. So until next time, this is John Hodges, the director of the Center for Western Studies. And this is the From the Center podcast. Hope to see you next time.